Listener Production. G'day, it's Rusty here, getting ready for the second part of my chat with respected and revered Supercars team owner, Roland Dane. If you haven't already listened to part one, make sure you check it out. From his early days on a farm tractor on the family property in the UK, to building and racing a hovercraft of all things, and successfully establishing himself in the automotive and racing businesses. He has some cool cars in the collection, as you'll hear in part two. A move to Australia and supercars in the early 2000s was the start of a very special chapter in his career. You've been successful in BTCC and, you know, the, that environment. There's obviously lots of learnings in that. Australia's a different sandpit and different kinds of race cars. Did you come into it and go, OK, I've got a plan of, you know, uh, three years, I want to be winning in two? Or what, what approach did you take to it? So I thought I'd give it... Um three years try and stack up <clears throat> see if we can make it stack up and by stack up I mean that you could see a, a financial <coughs> uh, way forward that it could be sustainable and to do that it needed to be also um, good enough on track as well and not necessarily winning but it had to be competitive so uh, yes there was you know, really needed to see by the end of 2006 uh, that we could set it up for the for the long haul or to be honest say no nah, okay probably um probably beyond us to succeed at this in 06 with chassis 10 you win bathurst on an unbelievably emotional day for for craig Lowndes. it wasn't long after he'd said goodbye to peter brock and it was huge for the for the sport you've kept that car um what did that mean to you and uh, RD has a thing about everything's for sale. Would you ever really part with Chassis 10? Yeah, of course I would. It's a, um, uh, yeah, no. A, the, the only proviso is that, um, like some of the other cars that we've sold, uh, I'd like it if, it, if it, if I do sell it at some point, I'd like it to go to somebody who um, keeps, it, keeps it properly. Uh, is prepared to roll it out at the right time. Yeah, Scotty Taylor, for instance, has got two of our Bathurst winning cars. And I know that if supercars or somebody has got the right thing, wants to borrow them and make sure they're running properly, you know, he'll, he'll, they'll always be ready to go from his point of view. He loves them and uh, and it will always look after them properly. Yeah, I mean, the Grove the Grove family have uh, have just bought the Sandman that we built in 2014, um, and they'll they'll keep it beautifully as well. You know, that's a that's a little bit of to me that's that car's a bit of art. It's a bit special, and um, so it's good for it to have a good home. But yeah, no, if everything's for sale, you can't be a car dealer at, at some stage and and not uh, not preach that. The championships. And Bathurst, people always say, what do you favour more and things like that? I mean, your record, which we'll get to in a second, is remarkable what you've achieved in both in both spaces. But I, I sense in you a little more, just a fraction more maybe intensity around Bathurst. The, the love of winning there really does mean a lot to you, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, I mean, people who, people who compete at Le Mans must feel the same way. I know that people, certainly in the old days, 
um, in F1, getting a good result at Monaco, even it could be a prick of a place to race at, to work at, everything else. But they still wanted to have a, a, a great result there. So, uh, and in touring car land, really, there are there are there are two big things, um, and uh, which was Spa and Bathurst. Uh, you know, back in the European touring car days in the eighties, um, when when there were some big events in Europe, and um, so to me, Bathurst is still uh, is still the pinnacle uh, of Australian racing, um, and the, the the most important thing that we do. Jamie kept a car. He bought it off you. Fictionately called Kate. He talked about it in the podcast. I think it was title winner 11 and 12. It's had an amazing run, an amazing record. Did you cut him a good deal? I did. I, <laughs> I, I, I cut him a very good deal as part of his uh, renewal, contract renewal at the time. No, Jamie got a good deal. On the other hand, he then did spend uh, plenty of money to put it back to uh, to exactly how he wanted it, and yeah, and to, to make it so that it was immaculate, uh, which it still is, still is today. His what he's achieved in in the supercars uh, history books may never be beaten. He's done some incredible things. On paper, at the time when you took him on board, many people probably would have said no. His his career and life could have gone a very different direction. What was it that you, because you're good with people, RD, and you can you clearly can see things. What did you see in him? What was the convincing moment where you went, "I'm going to I'm going to give this this guy a go"? Well, you've got to put it into context. At the time, at the the latter part of 2005, um, during during 05, uh, we'd had Craig on board since the beginning of the year, and that had, that had been part massive part of the transformation of the team. Uh, having him buy into the dream and then having him start winning races in May 05 with us. Um, and it was a massive driver uh, for everyone in the team. So uh, we had a... The other driver was Stephen Ellery that year. And he's a lovely bloke, uh, but was never going to um, set the world on fire. And I had to do something to try and put together a crew that would win Bathurst and so not everyone but a lot of people used to pair their drivers up in those days Uh, so I wanted somebody who was really good to put with Craig but who also would be a young um, Australasian driver who uh, would appeal to the local market who could would be a sort of half a generation younger than than uh, Craig uh, with potential. So, and I spoke to, there were three people on the shortlist. You know, there, was, there was Frosty, um, there was Davo, Will Davison, and Jamie. Um, and to be honest, the one who jumped the hardest, highest, fastest uh, to try and do something was Jamie. Yeah, he was, uh, I think he thought it was a, uh, a wind up when he got a phone call from me <laughs> um, but uh, he was he was driving that year in 05 for you know, another very good friend of mine Tim Miles and um, and but he was out of a drive at the end of the year so uh, yeah he, he knew that I think Murph was coming in the following year or whatever so he um, 
uh, yeah, couldn't get on a plane fast enough to come up, and he didn't care, or he he said he didn't care about the money. Um, so I didn't pay him very much if he didn't care about it. Uh, so he was ready, willing, and able, and he and but we had been particularly impressed by his driving in the two enduros that it, it, both at Sandown and at Bathurst with Jason Richards mm-hmm. um, he'd done exactly what he was asked to do at those races so and we needed somebody who could do that mm-hmm. then you know, I think it was in December that year we had a test uh, there was obviously much more testing allowed then we had a test day uh, Jamie came up drove drove the car um, at Queensland Raceway and to be honest within 10 laps we we were looking at his brake traces and saying this this guy's going to be special uh, he needed to lose a bit of weight mm-hmm. um, and uh, get fitter but he was going to be special he gets a little bit of a hard time in social media land which I think is wrong that's probably Aussie tall poppy syndrome knowing what he's what he's achieved when he came on board, not just those traces those that you're talking about there, his work ethic was pretty impressive too, wasn't it? So, well, Jamie's success has been built around his work ethic. Um, his, his, he's not a, a driver that can just get in the car, go flat out and then go and do something else and, and, and win. That, that, that's not Jamie's uh, uh, methodology. I don't want to take anything away from his natural talent because it's huge, but his success at the very top level and why he's won, I don't know what it is, 120 races odd now in supercars is because um, he works hard at it. So he wants to know what's going on. He wants to understand it. He wants to prepare himself properly. He wants to put himself in the right mental um frame of mind uh before he gets in the in the car so yeah his his preparations have developed and developed over the years uh because he's he's seen a reward for it you know he's he's done better as as a result of it so he's worked harder i i suspect than any other driver in pit lane uh for the success he's had but the success has come because he has worked so hard you mentioned Craig Lowndes there and then, you know, covered off Jamie Wincup. The In the front line piece of the puzzle, the other one now, as we talk here, is Shane Van Gisbergen. From what I witnessed in, in Adelaide, he's a leaner, Shane Van Gisbergen. He's a guy that, that properly loves driving, is a, you know, knows the history of the sport in detail in, in many ways. Has he kind of clicked it up a gear in terms of commitment another level in, in 2020? Um, yes, I think he has. Is the short answer to that. Um, Shane um, Shane has come into the year with more uh, more committed to the preparation side and looking after himself, etc. Uh, he's realised, you know, he's thirty years old now, and the sort of natural fitness you have when you're twenty years old um, suddenly you've got to work harder to maintain it when you're thirty, and that's just part of you know growing up. We've all been through that, um, etc. So. He's done that, but he's also um, the last few years since he's been since he's been with Triple Eight. Um, Shane has uh, got more confident, um, a little bit less shy. Doesn't mean that he's not shy. Still, he is sometimes, but he's uh, uh, but he is more confident. He is uh, better at at handling people, but he's also. 
uh, got more confident in his own ability, and uh, and rightly so. His uh, if he if he wasn't um, one of the top three drivers in the category, he'd be the top data man in the category. Wow. His his understanding of data, his reading of data, the way he processes it, etc., and then his ability to explain it to a third party, you know, be that an amateur driver or a young driver or whatever, is um, is superb. Um, his, his, as it happens, his data engineer, Martin Short, who's yet another Kiwi, um, there's a lot of you, but the uh, Martin w- was a, a very good Formula Ford racer, but is also very good at data. You know, Martin's claim to fame is he beat Scotty McLaughlin back in the day. <laughs> and um, so I think that's the screensaver on Shane's laptop. Um, but he, uh, um, Shane has got a massively high level of understanding of, uh, of the data side of the, of the sport. The other big piece of the puzzle of your, of your success story is people, team. Triple Eight staff retention is unbelievable. It's a real a real strength. You are big on embracing families, RD, your staff. You you want the family to to buy in because it's long hours, it's hard for the team. And so you you really do put your arm around the families, don't you? Uh, I try to. Um, I try to uh, to look after the people. I mean, it, yeah. One of my mantras in in business is to is to look after the good people and piss off the bad people, or the all the people who don't fit in. Yeah. And uh, now every so often I get that wrong, but um, the, only the liars don't get it wrong sometimes. But the uh, certainly try to look after the good people, and uh, we have got some very good people. Um, if I see. Yeah, every so often over the years, I see a little bit of culture developing that even good people who've been around too long or that you need a change of environment or you need to step it up a bit or somebody who's come in who's caused some a bit of angst in the team, etc. You have to be able to be prepared to flush that out. And, um, and there have been a few times over the years when I've done that uh, to try and protect the... Uh, the longevity at the top of the sport of the you know the success um, uh, and being uh, continually at the top level uh, I've had to do that sometimes to 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 ensure that I think the culture um, is correct that leads my natural line of questioning to to loyalty your that's one of your core values I, I know that I believe in balance so I'll get I'll get Ludo's side at another time I'm talking to you here now but Ludo Lacroix was with you for a really long time on the engineering side. He went off and joined your fierce rival in pit lane in Penske. I don't need to know the backstory about that so much. I just want to understand how you must have taken that because I would imagine that would have wounded you pretty significantly. So basically I had no problem with Ludo... um, going off and working for anyone else but the but the reality is that the only thing that i uh really still feel deeply about with ludo is the way he left not the fact he left and the and the great thing was that he he then created the space by leaving for other people who felt there was a bit of a glass ceiling uh, which there was in many ways to then step up 
And, and one of the reasons Jeremy left, uh, Jeremy Moore left, uh, was because you know, he, he couldn't go any further with us. Then he went off to Porsche and achieved a great deal and has now come back um, in, a, in a different capacity with a, a, a massively improved skill level. Now, since he's gone, we've had lots of chats. Yeah, we ended up famously in 2017. So the <laughs> first race meeting... <laughs> first race meeting of the year um, Adelaide uh, and got onto the plane on Sunday night to fly back to Brisbane and I was sitting in yeah whatever it was 12A or something and uh, Ludo's come down got on and he suddenly realised he's sitting next to me <laughs> and uh, he's looked a bit bewildered and then plonked himself down in 12B etc and we had a we had a good chat right so um yeah, which I'll never forget the the way he left, but we had a good chat, etc. And we've had plenty of chats since. I want to share a yarn with some people in, in you know in Fanland. Some have this perception of you as, as as dark overlord, controlling figure, but there's a side and a yarn that they probably don't know. Tim Miles, who you've talked about in the podcast here, who years later would become part of of Triple Eight. He tells me you made a presentation to the Supercars board to change the distribution of prize money. You'll be able to tell me the numbers. I don't know the percentages here. But but you effectively wanted something more equitable for everyone down the grid. A Gordon Gecko would probably say, you're mad, don't do that, because you're taking money out of your own pocket. Just explain that yarn and what you did. Yeah, it was back um, GFC time, 2008. And we were... We were all extremely concerned as team owners, as supercars, uh, about what the effect would be um, on the Australian economy and how it would impact on our, on our world. We, had, um, we didn't know at that point that there would be a massive Chinese stimulus which would uh, revitalise the mining sector in Australia that Kevin Rudd would give everyone a flat screen TV or whatever and, and all these things would roll out we didn't know that so we were very concerned about it we looked hard at um, at cutting some costs which we did you know we had for instance we brought in the limitation number of people you take to races did some things around that which have stood the test of time um, we set we set down the parameters for mid 2010 to introduce the control camshaft which saved a lot of money in engine land so but uh, but i presented something which basically took the the revenue that the teams got so for argument's sake if the teams were splitting uh, at that time 15 million dollars for instance between us that was split um 80 20 so it was actually um 80% was appearance money and 20% was prize money, but the prize money was massively biased towards the first uh, first two or three cars um, finishing uh, finishing order uh, for each race. So, and I said, uh, this is um, inequitable going forward because a year before that, um, I'd come up with a plan to get rid of the level two licenses and bring everyone up to the same level because it was a massive bone of contention. And um, as part of that, Ross Stone and I had finally put the Nemo case to bed just by the simple tactic of having lunch with Terry and Paul at, um, at the winery at Cirame. Um And we put it to bed. 
Then we dealt with the um, the level one, level two issue, and now in in two thousand and eight. Uh, we dealt with on the back of the paper I put up to actually the team owners as a group. Uh, we we dealt with the um, the distribution in a way which, to be honest, hurt two teams the most at that stage. By two thousand eight, the people who were winning uh, more races than anyone else was um, you know, uh, HSV stroke HRT at the time and us. Uh, and I had to persuade, to be honest, Craig Craig Wilson, who was at um, at Walkinshaws at the time, that this was a, a good thing. Um, but he agreed, etc. And so, so we all signed up to a distribution system that we have that we have today. Uh, and it did take money out of our pockets, took many hundreds of thousands of dollars out of Triple H's pockets, uh, but it provided a better framework for the for the teams going forward. The next part of the, you know, showing a little bit of that side to you is the fact that when supercars were sold to to Archer Capital, that whole thing almost became a full-time job for you, didn't it, in, in, in ensuring lots of things were in place and right for the sport going forward. Am I correct there? Yeah. I mean, if you, you roll back the middle of 2010, um, Tony Cochran had come to uh, Ross Stone and I and uh, said to said to us, look, it, there are real problems within um, within SEL, uh, and uh, honestly, uh, we needed to try and come up with a solution which uh, where we could uh, sell down some or all of the sport or whatever, and give SEL um, an exit probably from the sport. So uh, Tony had a few ideas about it, but didn't come to anything. Um, then uh, I, I thought, well, maybe we can bring in another party. Uh, not quite sure how to do it. So I went and sat down with Tim, who by that stage was no longer a team owner. Um, so he was literally arm's length and, and explained the problem to him in, in September, etc. And we went and sat down with the private equity guy, who, as it happens, was part of Archer, but uh, they weren't only because Tim knew him well uh, enough to go and have a chat, loose chat about this, um, and came up with a, a formula that we thought we could then we could sell down a part of the team's interest, um, s- enable SEL to um, to exit, and uh, um, help us fund changing the cars to the car of the future uh, for 2013 as well as teams um, and and we yeah we came up with a, a formula that um, Tim and I put to the teams on the Monday after the Gold Coast in 2010 we then embarked having got everyone on board and uh, um, some of them didn't believe it could ever be done but uh, they agreed to come along and see if you know if if we could do this uh but then we embarked on a six month period really of six seven months a huge amount of work now obviously um tim and and one of his um offsider steve bowering did they did an awful lot of the work but they still relied on um, on somebody on our side all the time and uh and that's really yeah i could only do that uh, because at the end of 2010, Adrian Burgess came 
uh, to, to work for me at Triple Eight. So that enabled me from the beginning of January 2011, to, uh, which is when the process really started to happen on the sale side of it. Yeah, to get to get involved with it, and literally, I was backwards and forwards from from Sydney um, every week, uh, going and. Um, rewriting the constitution rewriting the racing entitlements contract rewriting coming up with the the commission uh, concept then you're putting all these things together uh during that period through till the end of uh, the end of may and and managing the um the sel side of it um particularly with um uh with david coe who he died in 2013, but um, David was a part of SEL, and um, uh, he was a, a non-executive part of SEL. But uh, but he handled um, their their um, interaction with uh, Tim and, and myself most of the time. common causes for understeer front wheel drive high cornering speed but the most common forgetting that you're not in a rear wheel drive car when craig lowndes ultimately stopped racing full time it's great that he's still doing enduro stuff with you now there was all this talk this rumor about simona di silvestro that she might join you guys and perhaps your daughter jess dane might have a significant role in that particular team and and so on how close did that get why did it perhaps not come to pass um, yeah, it it, uh, it got pretty close in August. Um, when would that have been? August twenty eighteen. Um, it didn't. It didn't happen because uh, I'd set a deadline for the funding to be in place um, by a certain time, and it, um, and I'd set the deadline. And I said to everyone concerned, if it isn't done by then, I'm not going to do it. And uh, so I didn't want to be hanging on, hanging on, and then compromising the thing. We'd had a we'd had a really good th- uh, three years um, with Craig uh, as the third car, and I'd always said the only person I'd run uh, third car for was Craig. There had to be a really good reason, um, and and uh, um, Simona could have been that good reason, but it had to be a really good reason, well funded, etc. To, for us to to do it, and unfortunately, it just uh, it didn't come to didn't come to pass. Maybe, yeah, maybe several people didn't believe me in terms of having a deadline, but I had a deadline, and that's uh, um, that's the way you have to do business if you're going to prepare yourself. Because if it wasn't going to happen, I need to do some other things. That's the issue. So um, I wanted to make sure that we were uh, that we were properly prepared going into the. 2019 season. You talked about 2019 there a moment ago. Let's, um, you know, in the, in the latter part of last year, early part of this year, Supercars has worked to improve the, the technical parity between Commodore and, and Mustang. At what point last year did you realise that Mustang had an edge and where were you when that, when that happened? Well, at the end of 2018, there was an aero test uh, and um, yeah, VCAT as they're called, uh, and the other side had turned up with a car that was just so radically different from anything that had been done before. It, yeah, we knew we were on on the back foot, 
And uh, but because because supercars as a category had never been placed in this position, or certainly in the in the sixteen years that I'd been around, then I didn't really know how to deal with it. So, which is totally different from how the landscape had been um, for the Ford versus Holden uh, fight all the time I'd been in Australia. There'd been yeah, there. Don't, I'd never say there hadn't been differences, but it's been so small that other things had been more important. Yeah, you know, the team, the driver, the et cetera, et cetera. So uh, it was a, a rude shock to the system. It was a rude shock to supercars and the teams that we suddenly had this inequity. Now, to their credit, they dealt with the centre of gravity problem straight away. Uh, and um, we'd been asking and asking and asking and asking, but they dealt, they dealt with it as quickly as they practically could. Uh, the aero side was more complicated, and we had a couple of false dawns, but we knew what needed to be done to put us in the same ballpark. And we'd even gone to the aero test at the beginning of December in 2018 with the gurney that we then ran later in the year from we'd gone with it we hadn't ever tested it but we'd gone with it because we would said to supercars we should have this in the toolbox in case we need it having looked at the mustang at queensland raceway you know pictures of it we should go there with that well that's what exactly the part that went on the car in uh at pukekohe and when we put it on the pukekohe we'd never ever had it on a car before um but that we had we thought that might be the fix for what we needed and it certainly put us back in the in the ballpark but the politics along the way um to be honest almost destroyed the the sport you've talked about pictures at queensland raceway there for a driver when you you know at 200 plus kilometers an hour a lot of things slow down for them is it urban myth that that someone a driver could see the behaviour of the Mustang rear wing relative to its its rear window and got on the radio and howled about it. Is that true or is that rubbish? Um, I want to put that into context because what we call the DRS effect of wings um, changing, So, and that's been going on for a few years, mm-hmm. and it's not exclusive to the Mustang. So supercars have quite rightly have... Um, uh, tried to and, and I think probably have succeeded in stopping uh, too much flex going on in the rear wing but basically for the last probably the last five years or so five or six years people have been trying to get the the rear wing to flex by various means uh, to try and reduce effectively reduce the angle of attack of the rear wing um, down the straight so what was going on with um, one or two of the mustangs last year in that sense it, it wasn't as though other people hadn't been trying to do it as well they they had been um, uh, because it wasn't it wasn't properly ruled around yeah there was a naivety somewhere um, that teams took a teams took advantage of uh, and we were told there'd be rules coming in around it but then they didn't really come in at all until this year you've spoken quite positively we're only one round in as we we chat here but you feel like things are better that things are uh, closer more correct in that in that department now? I, I think they probably are uh, I think um, Adelaide's not really a um, uh, an aero track but there's still aero is still important 
yeah, we've run the figures. Supercars have run the figures in terms of of parity between the two makes of car. There's there's now um, there's eight Mustangs, which is a good thing if you like to to be able to run a model of two two against two, four against four, six against six, etc. And they're all all those results pop out figures that are massively within what we would regard as parity in the sport. So it it does look good at the moment um hopefully it stays that way the what um supercars did at the end of last year with the two aero test not one but two um was not only technically better but it was also the second one especially was conducted with total transparency and in in doing that it then meant that you had proper backup from the teams in the brain department yeah there's some good brains there on both sides so they could both cross-examine the data and in fact you know that in january at the test there it was massively important let's before we get to the finish punch through some car stuff robin reliant as he's known on socials has a reliant robin three-wheeler tell us about that <laughs> um I bought one about I can't remember about five years ago or something, etc. I thought it'd be fun to have one over. Um, was it Top Gear that prompted you? Why did you want to do that? Yeah, it probably was. Uh, watching that famous uh, skit with Clarkson and Co. Um, but I, uh, um, I thought we needed uh, a bit of entertainment at Norwell, and uh, so, so, and I'd also bought an entire set of. Um, Pirelli um, calendars at a, an auction in London. Uh, so I thought, oh, there's a big pile of these bloody calendars and everything. Maybe I should put them in a car and send it over. So, so I bought a, a quite a, what was then quite a good condition uh, Reliant Robin, and put the calendars in the back and sent them over. So uh, and that when it arrived whenever it was I can't, it must be four years ago now or something uh, and um, so I took it down to Paul's and said um, well, could you put a half cage in it you know so it's a little bit safer and a, and a window net or something and Paul said yeah yeah we can do that no problem but let's take it for a spin <laughs> so he and I spent a, I think it was a Saturday morning and we pissed ourselves laughing and then Gary Holt rolled up because he was just passing and uh, had a go as well and I think um, Paul's girlfriend um, Karina has got some footage or something of that morning it was uh, one of the funniest mornings I've ever had and since then it's I mean the car's been on its side I don't know how many times but but many many times um, around Norwell and we've had a lot of fun with it. Love it. You're talking about the dude, Paul Morris, who has been a guest on the on the podcast before, who is probably responsible for the tattoo that you now bear. You did a you did a road a great road trip with him. What was it in a it was an old American cop car, I think, wasn't it? And you you cruised to Texas or something? What'd you do? Yeah, we uh, when we did that race in Texas, you know, remember in May 2013, and Paul and I uh, said well, we're going to have some fun along the way, so we um, uh, we decided that we needed an old police car uh, to, to drive across America, you know, from L.A. to, to Austin. And that would be our road trip. Um, so he rang up Boris Said 
and Boris has a BMW dealership outside San Diego. Um, so he's somewhere a car dealer. So uh, Paul said, can you get us one? And Boris uh, said, yeah, I've just bought one for you, at Crown Victoria um, with a big engine and everything, etc. cetera. Um, and it, you know, Washington State Police car or something, uh, two and a half thousand dollars. Perfect. Okay, so, so we rolled over there, picked that up, and uh, drove to Vegas. Um, we can't remember what happened, but we were very poor when we left the next day and, and very ill. I, I think we made the mistake of ringing Mick Doohan on the way to ask Mick where we should go, and then that screwed us. So we, um, we, ended, we ended up quite ill, and, and then we drove um, through... Um, El Paso, etc., you know, all the way to 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 Austin in that car, um, and I think the the car was last seen. Paul then drove it to to Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s house or something in Charlotte around there, and left it there. <laughs> I love it. You are a bit of a life of the party. I know that when you when you get going, you did something for me a few years ago, which I treasure. We went to Norwell there, the motorplex between Gold Coast and and Brisbane, which Paul Morris owns and runs. You had a day where you let a few of us sample some machinery. So I got to drive at the time a, a Red Bull Commodore of, of Craig Lowndes. One of my buddies in television, actually, a, a producer, Michael Heaton, I think he thought he was going to be the last of the late breakers and went off at the back straight. I've never seen you run so fast in my life, which was awesome. But separately, you let me drive a Camaro that you've got. And it's a pretty rare beast from memory, a rare right-hand drive. Has it got some Andy Rouse heritage or something too? Tell me about that. Yeah, so that that car is um, it's one of uh, only I think three right-hand drive shells that were built by Fisher in in '67 in Canada, and um, I've got two of them. One's a road car in the UK that uh, that I've got that to be honest, complete bit of shit. Um, <laughs> it drives diabolically badly, but um, it was used in a Fast and Furious film a few years ago, and um, and the blue one. Uh, was built by into a race car by Andy Rouse in the early mid '90s for a sponsor of his uh, called Pete Hall, and Pete, Pete Hall had a company called ICS, which was a, quite a famous sponsor on Andy's um, Sierra. Nice. Yeah, exactly, yeah. correct. So, um, and Pete owned the car for many years and uh, was selling it about. 10 or 12 years ago or something and I bought it and uh, bought it out here I love it, I love the way the car looks I think it's the best looking uh, Camaro that there's been Uh, the car is incredibly simple as a race car um, but lots of power. Uh, Kenny Kenny Max made sure it's got plenty of grunt. plenty of, plenty of grunt. It's pretty light, etc. And it goes like goes like stink. And I enjoy uh, using it at um, using it at uh, mucking around at Norwell. You can't go that fast, uh, but it makes a beautiful noise. Um, so yeah, I've got the, I've, that and a few other things that are really just to play to to play with. Yeah. The final two in that that I'd, I'd like to cover, if you're comfortable with it. One of them you shared, I think, recently on, on social media, Opal Mansa. What, what, did, what did you... I mean, has that got a rally background? What's the heritage on that thing? Uh, it, 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 uh, an Irish farmer had it. <laughs> in, 
in his in his shed, and it, his uh, Opel Mantas. Were, yeah, they're like four Capris in the in the seventies, early eighties, and everything. And it just uh, was quite a well built um, two liter Manta. Uh, and um, so I bought it. I can't remember four years ago or something off this farmer brought it out here. We've had some fun with it um, out here, and it every so often take it for a run. Uh, but the to, to me, these things need to be fun you know the the thing like uh, you know i've got a, a subaru wrx sti two-door um that shane has tried his best to hammer the guts out of and <laughs> drive it around norway without using the brakes because he just throws it sideways everywhere um but that's an awesome car great fun i've got a, a an xj jaguar xjs group a car uh, that i just bought in in um, christchurch a few months ago it's now in australia um that um, angus fogg has been looking after the last few years a uh, white one um and the other day i bought a um an audi uh, quattro sport um short wheelbase yeah um that'll come out here soon so have some fun with that I love it. I love it. We can't wrap up this conversation, RD, without discussing Holden. Um, some of it, because it's so fresh in everyone's minds, you may not be able to tell us, which is fine. Were you shocked about the sudden nature of GM's decision to, to turn out the lights, to retire the brand, to close Holden down? Not a lot of people... I mean, I think people thought the day would come, but maybe not as fast as it did. Yeah, I mean, I, I was... I was uh, surprised by the timing. I, th- I thought that there was uh, going to be a possibility of this happening at some stage uh, because of the retreat from right-hand drive markets around the world. Um, but I thought that the Australian business model was going to be given a bit longer to, to show that it would work or not work. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, just uh, at the end of the day, yeah, if you're not producing right-hand drive cars for anywhere but Australia, New Zealand and Thailand mm-hmm. uh, it it doesn't give you a very big market so um, whilst it was a bit of a shock timing wise yeah I mean at the end of the day uh, you could see it being a distinct possibility at some stage uh, it's disappointing and sad very sad uh, to see the back of um, the brand in in this country but yeah that's life there have been plenty of other brands have died over the years um history's full of car brands and motor racing brands that have um come and gone very successful ones and and uh the heritage of holden is unbelievable in in and it's uh part of australian history for everyone not just motor racing um but at the end of the day it didn't stack up What's the future hold in your mind for two prong question? Firstly, let's go let's go supercars. There's you know discussion about about you know fast tracking Gen three regulations and things like that. What in a perfect world do you think supercars would or should become? Well, it's a it's a really hard environment at the moment. Not uh, putting aside the Holden thing, mm-hmm. it's a really hard environment at the moment to to really try and second guess what's going on in the world automotively right now. Um, Are we all going to be driving electric cars? Are we all going to be hybrid? You know, where's it it going? Um, So at the end of the day, the direction is probably trying to say, look, we're entertainment. 
we love um, the big raucous cars that we've got how can we best take that forward and say the next few years honestly if you want to go off and buy an electric car to drive around town do it but that's not supercars supercars uh, we need to to stick to our dna for the foreseeable future Um, we need to be prepared to encompass what a particularly halo cars today you know in terms of okay maybe they're two-door cars because four-door cars are seen as just uber these days uh maybe we've got to embrace those uh but we've but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that um we we're built on the the fan base that does love internal combustion engines Mm. and I think we've forgotten to tell the story in the last few years of the fact that we are running a renewable fuel, 85% ethanol, in our cars, which, to be honest, sugar in Queensland um, is almost a weed these days. People don't want to put, put in soft drinks or whatever. So we should actually be promoting not just as supercars, but as a country, we should be doing a much better job of using one of the most renewable fuels there is in, um, in it with ethanol. Uh, so I don't think we have to justify our position if we stick to our, our guns and uh, provide great entertainment with um, yeah, loud cars, fast cars, uh, that people, at the end of the day... Want to, want to come and see. The fact is that people have stopped using horses to go to work, but they spend more money on horses today than they ever have done in history. They've stopped using sailboats to go and catch fish or come from the UK to Australia. Yeah, it's a, um, but people still spend a fortune on sailboats, right? So um, there's a place for us going forward and having fun um, and people enjoying it and being prepared to to pay us, and we shouldn't we shouldn't be shy about it. Final part is what I feel or perhaps see as a, a little thought towards succession planning at, at your your company. And we've seen Paul Dumbrell come on board. We've seen Jamie Wincup take a stake in it. We've mentioned Tim Miles during this discussion um, as well. I mean, your own daughter is, you know, clearly doing things that, that might one day see her take a, you know, a key role there too. She's already doing some amazing things for the company. What do you see Triple Eight becoming in, in the years ahead? What would you like it to be? Well, I'd, I'd certainly like to have somebody competent uh, to take it over um, uh, from me in terms of running it um, day to day. Uh, and uh, I would be very, very happy if Jamie was that person um, because I think he's uh, improving uh, from a non-driving point of view at a massive rate at the moment uh, and um, has got the potential to do the job. I've also got to remember there's an extraordinarily capable group of people, um, many of whom have worked for me for a long time, um, just below the surface, if you like, uh, in terms of you know Mark Dutton, in terms of uh, Nuri Patterson, who's the CFO, in terms of uh, Jeremy Moore now back, in terms of Tom Wilson, uh, Chris Goose, and Andrew Simpson. Those those people uh, are yeah they're hardcore Triple Eight people, and um, and many of them work work that well. Some all the time have been in Australia. 
So uh, they need the direction of, of somebody, and uh, Jamie is capable of being that person. Um, by the same token, yeah, I, I, I think there's a role somewhere in there if she wants it for, for Jessica. But A, she's got to want it. And um, and B, it's got to fit in with it, with everyone else. So I'm not going to try to steer her in any direction. It's up to her to make the decision. Does she? Yeah. Once in two years' time, she'll be a, a lawyer as well as a as well as a journalist, as it were, in terms of her her abilities. Um, and so, if she wants to go and use those skills somewhere else in the in the world, let alone the motorsport world. Um, then I'm not going to uh, provide any impediment to that whatsoever. Uh, on the other hand, if she wants to stay around and I can, I can help her do that, I think one thing she does really like is our involvement in GTs. And, uh, and I can see at a point at which yeah, she's, she may well play um, a much greater role in that side of the uh, in that side of the team, uh, in that side of the business, as it as it develops, I mean that's developing uh, pretty well at the moment. Congratulations on everything that you've you've achieved. Eight's a lucky number in Asia. Triple Eight is incredibly lucky, but you've made your own luck. You've worked hard with a number of great people, and I hope you've paused to whether it's BTCC, what you've done here in Australia, pause to soak up a bit of that because it's a remarkable story. And I think we could cover a lot more of it here, but but we've done the, the snapshot here. Well done. Yeah, thanks, Ross. It's been a, an honour not only to have done it, but also, you know, when I look at the people that you've had on here, um, etc. as well, some of them friends of mine, um, except it's, it's good to be included. Thanks very much. Rusty's Garage is written and presented by me, Greg Rust. Series producer and editor is Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.